Thank you for your practice. I hope you're all doing well tonight. It's nice to see you and to be back together with the group practicing. I was over at the new Boston Meditation Center this afternoon. Um, Not too much to report. I was there to receive the delivery of a couch, which some of you will sit on someday. once we finish the construction, uh, which is coming along quite well. We're finishing painting and uh, doing a little prep work to install <coughs> install the hardwood floors. It's exciting. As I mentioned at the beginning of our class, uh, this is the third talk in a series of what I think will be, um, I think will be probably five talks on equanimity. And the first two talks, one was in uh, March and the other was uh, on April, Eight, and we'll have a talk on May 6th and May 27. And I know I also mentioned this earlier, but I'll say it again that the first two talks are available for download on Podbean. And maybe I could ask you, Ryan, sometime during the next half an hour or 45 minutes, maybe just to put that link in the uh, chat uh, for people to, to cut and paste at the end of class if they want to. So by way of review, briefly, equanimity in the Pali is upekka, upekka, and <clears throat> Upeka is a state of mind, it's a particular quality of mind that is described as and felt as stable and balanced. It's sometimes been referred to as in the middle, in a sense being in between two places. So uh, in the middle of for and in the middle of against. There's a sense of uh, neutrality. And what I mean by that is when a mind marked by equanimity looks out at the world, there is a sense of things being value neutral. Things being value neutral. Something important to note about equanimity is that 
this quality of stability or balance is true even when or particularly when things are unpleasant, not going our way, not meeting our preferences. So that having been said, it's a very, I would say strong, it's a very strong state of mind. However, that strength is a kind of pliancy, um, flexibility, permeability. Uh, I, I, I would say, well, I would say this about most things. Um, strength, actually, strength in this case is, is really gentle. It's very receptive and open. So the strength is kind of an unguarded, uh, unprotected. This, it's, the mind is very open. The mind is very tolerant. The mind is very accepting. And n normally, I think, at least for me, I think in this tradition, we're using that, that kind of language to talk about our relationship to mental objects, pain, um, situations in our life. And that's true here, though, as you'll see in this talk tonight, those those qualities or those attributes are also being used to describe how the mind sees and relates to other people. Talk one from last month focused on explaining Upeka's defining qualities and characteristics as well as where uh, the equanimity teachings can be found, such as the seven factors of awakening, the four Brahma-viharas, uh, the paramis or the perfections, of which there are ten in the Theravada tradition. And talk two focused on Upeka's relationship to wisdom, particularly in reference to the eight worldly winds or uh, the eight vicissitudes, inevitable experiences, events, factors in life that are always changing, are unavoidable, and are um, often throwing us off balance. And so they are presented as a way to practice and measure the stability of our mind. And those are the worldly winds of gain and loss, the worldly winds of praise and blame, fame and disrepute and pleasure and pain. Tonight I want to look at equanimity in the context of the Brahma Viharas specifically. Uh, what uh, is sometimes referred to simply as the heart teachings. Next winter we'll do a whole three month retreat dedicated to practicing and studying the heart teachings, the Brahma-viharas. So this is a very central part of the canon of the uh, insight practice lineage. Giving us a list of four distinct qualities to cultivate in our mind through our practice. Let's begin by considering this frame of reference, Brahma-viharas. Uh, 
Upeka or equanimity is one of four Brahma Viharas, the other three being compassion, Karuna, uh, appreciative joy, Mudita, and kindness, Metta, loving kindness, or benevolence. These four Brahma Viharas are known as the divine abidings. A little bit of uh, a little bit of religious language here. The divine abidings. Their their association with the divine, at least in name, gives them, I think, uh, at least for me, a, a very exalted place in early Buddhist literature and thought. Uh, if something is recognized as or given the title as divine. It's at first rarefied, it is sought for in our practice, and also in the case of this tradition, ultimately attainable, even if rarefied at the, at the outset of our practice. So these Brahma-viharas, if you will, have a certain sacred weightiness to them. They uh, represent a highly cultivated mind and heart, mind-heart mind hyphen heart Brahma B-R-A-H-M-A Brahma sometimes is used in Buddhist context as synonymous with Arahant a fully enlightened one and it is true this term is borrowed from uh, is borrowed by Buddhism from the caste mentality that certain people are deserving of the highest respect. Um, Buddhist, references of Bra- Buddhist references to Brahma indicate a great one, uh, uh, an inhabitant of a highly refined state. In Buddhism, in early Buddhism, the term Brahma does not indicate, however, that a person's worth is determined by birth, race, caste, but rather, and this is a critical point, by their level of spiritual achievement. The Buddha may have been an early pioneer in breaking down uh, certain rigid social divisions and prejudices particularly in his acknowledgement of equal access to enlightenment for all beings. Even if Buddhist communities and countries have not always been able to escape the forces of uh, systemic inequities. So Brahma, uh, Brahma all exalted, um, evolved, well-practiced, gone beyond and vihara brahma viharas vihara vihara is an abiding um it's uh dwelling abiding dwelling um even literally a place a place to abide a place to dwell literally um a Buddhist vihara, a place to 
rest and to be uh, temporarily out of the element. Sometimes if, uh, if you're traveling, and not necessarily in India, but in other countries, um, you'll, you'll see mention of a Buddhist vihara or a vihara of a particular lineage, right? So this is a place where Buddhists gather to practice, study, maybe even live together, uh, or again, just a place to stop and rest while traveling, a place to get good food, uh, warm water for tea or coffee. A place to get um, to get out of the elements. So, Brahma Vihara, if we put those words together, is a great dwelling place, a noble dwelling place, uh, a safe or even sacred dwelling place. Just want to pause here and check in and uh, see how the sound is. You can still hear me okay? Okay. My sound goes off, out, on its own now. (laughs) For those of you who are into gizmos, I've got the Blue Yeti. I just haven't set it up yet. It's coming soon. In this case, the place of dwelling is our own mind, specifically the mind of upekka, uh, balanced and stable. If this highly sought after place of abiding is to be separate or different from other more ordinary places, it is a place of abiding far away from avidya, which is ignorance, dosa, which is irritation or anger, and tanha, which is craving. Again, if this highly specialized but yet attainable place of abiding is to be separate or different from other more ordinary places, it is a place of abiding away from ignorance, away from anger, and away from craving. I'll talk next a little bit about, more specifically about equanimity as a divine divine abode. And then I'm going to, I'm going to screen share with you, uh, I'm going to screen share and show you uh, a chart that organizes some of the key features of equanimity in a way that will just, I think, just be visually different. And so we'll, we'll see how that works. Upeka is the fourth of the divine abodes, often. Uh, they're not always listed in a linear way, but uh, I, would, I would say more often than not. Joseph Goldstein says that it is Upeka's impartiality, its ability to hold all things equally, that gives the other Brahma Viharas their boundless capacity. The Brahma Viharas sometimes called the boundless abodes, boundless mind states. 
what we might take from this is that while metta, the Pali for loving kindness, while metta underlies all the Brahma Viharas, creating a foundation for appreciative joy, compassion, and equanimity to arise, Upeka ensures that all the Brahma Viharas can arise at any time and to be without limit. We are capable, under the right conditions, and we meditate to create the right conditions, we are capable under the right conditions of being kind to everyone, striving for the alleviation of suffering for all people, and due directly to our own well-being, we can be happy for another's well-being. Jealousy and exaggerated self-interest don't get in the way when our own mind is contented. Ultimately, what we are talking about is how our mind has no limits in terms of its ability to be free of dukkha and aspire to the same freedom for other beings. This liberated state is at the heart of the Dharma's vision for individual and community harmony and health. If you're wondering what I'm doing, um, there's a woman behind this wall talking on the phone, yelling really loud. And I think she's angry. I think she needs meta. I'd like to read a short passage from the Visuddhimagga. The Visuddhimagga... Um, is the path of purification and probably considered the principal non-canonical Buddhist text. The Visuddhimagga uh, it's, a, it's a fairly it's a fairly large text however what it does is it takes a much larger volume of information some would argue most of the meditation instructions contained within the whole Pali Canon and organizes and condenses and consolidates them into one uh, very neat and tidy uh, document. In this, this passage is referring to a practitioner of the Brahma Viharas specifically. They should also see the advantages in equanimity because it is peaceful. Then they should arouse equanimity by looking on with equanimity at a person who is normally neutral. 
neutral to them, someone they don't have much of a relationship to. After that, at a dear person, someone they really care for. And the rest, quote, and the rest, end quote, is a reference to everyone else, which would be um, those we dislike, our enemies, and to all beings, including humans and non-human nature. For this is said, and how does a practitioner dwell pervading one direction with their heart endued with equanimity? Just as they would feel equanimity on seeing a person who was neither beloved nor unloved, they, they then pervade all beings with equanimity. I'd like to, end quote, I'd like to highlight the phrase, quote, dwell pervading one direction with their heart endued with equanimity, end quote. I think it may be tempting to see Upeka as reliant upon a certain distancing from inner and outer conditions, particularly obstacles, that which we don't prefer, people we don't like. Uh, for those of you who were at the first talk in this series, you might remember that I briefly talked about Stoicism, how it, uh, and how specifically how it differs from equanimity. During that talk, I mentioned that the equanimous, the equanimous mind is not separate from feeling states, but rather fully aware of them. So being impartial is not being separate from, it is being unhindered by. So equanimity is not without heart uh, in the way that we in the West use that word. In fact, it rests on the development of loving-kindness, friendliness, benevolence. I want to point out one more phrase from a subsequent section of the Vasudhimaga. In this passage, a description is given of how to achieve equanimity for all beings using a standard format that progresses systematically through different categories of people, starting with a neutral person and including people we don't like in ourselves, it is said, quote, they should break down the barriers in each case between the people. Quote, they should break down the barriers in each case between the people, end quote. Breaking down the barriers between categories of people is profoundly insightful, unprejudiced, and inclusive, and compassionate, making clear that our liberation is tied to the liberation of others, and that others' liberation is tied to our own. There seems to be no question that the Dharma advocates for what I would call freedom equity and safety equity. The question relevant to the lives of modern practitioners has to do with how serious we take this aspiration in our own lives. For me, this radical vision for freedom for all beings provides a strong case 
for the preservation of the true Dharma. Not an off-the-shelf, big-box store variety that trends toward feeling a little better about ourselves through a kind of mindfulness-laced, feel-good psychology. The Buddha asks us, invites us, and attempts to show us the way to uproot all discriminating thought. All thought that leads to unskillful actions, feelings of unsafety, resulting in harm. The Buddha advocates for our own liberation and for the liberation of all beings. This is throughout the Pali Canon. One last passage from the Vasudhimaga. Equanimity is characterized as promoting the aspect of neutrality toward beings. Its function is to see equality in beings. It is manifested as the quieting of resentment and approval It succeeds when it makes resentment and approval subside, and it fails when it produces the equanimity of unknowing, which is that worldly-minded indifference or ignorance. Its function is to see equality in being. It is manifested in the quieting of resentment. It succeeds when it makes resentment subside. Okay, so I'm going to leave... I'm going to leave a little more time tonight for any questions or, th- or thoughts or comments... Uh, And before I do that, I'm going to briefly screen share with you, which is harder to do when we're working together in person, though we'll have a nice big overhead projector that we can use. Uh, And I'll, I'll map some of these ideas out in a grid for those of you who who think and learn grid like. Okay. Okay. So, thumbs up if you can see my screen. Um, can you still see my screen? Yeah, but I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on. No, no, no. All right. On the left, we have these, let's call them values. And uh, on the right, um, an explanation. So in the first line item, we have the characteristic. So what what is the characteristic of Upeka? 
promoting objectivity toward beings, promoting objectivity toward beings. This is in other places been described as neutrality toward beings. Um, we're not giving preference to one or the other. There's, there's, an, there's, there's, there's equity built in. There's equity built into equanimity, fundamentally. What is the function of upekka? The function is to see equality in beings. What is the manifestation? How do we see it when, it's, uh, when equanimity is arising? It, we see the subsiding of acquisitiveness and resistance. When does it succeed? It makes acquisitiveness and resistance subside. When does equanimity fail? Wapati produces mundane equanimity of the uninformed. An example would be uh, stoicism, just a sense of like, I'm fine, I don't have any feelings, I'm not feeling anything. Um, dismissive, like dis dismissive behaviors often look equanimous, right? But it's really ignorance. It's outside the felt sense of, of, the, of the feeling of the thing, the feeling tone. The near enemy, something that looks like it might be equanimity, but it's not. Same thing, mundane equanimity of the uninformed. Um, not willing to feel, able, not, not being able to feel. And the far enemy is attachment and resistance. So when we cling or hold too tightly to our ideas, concepts, beliefs, preferences, equanimity can't arise. We certainly can't evaluate um, people as uh, we, we can't see the rightness or appropriateness uh, or sameness of beings. We can't accept everyone. Okay, so we have characteristics functions, manifestations, manifestation, how it succeeds, when it fails, and it's near and far enemy. Enemy. 